0: Today, I am speaking with David Jimenez, and he is a graduating senior from Pittsburgh, and he is a columnist for the Orient. He is a history major. Um, Next year, he is going on a Fulbright to Romania, and he'll be doing the English Teaching Assistantship. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. And he is also the founder of the Eisenhower Forum, which I know he'll give us some more information about as we talk. Um, And he's also a fond former first first year advisee of mine or pre-major advisee of mine. And um, so today we're going to follow the usual format where I'm going to ask you three questions. And those are, what's most important to you? Um, What does a liberal arts education mean to you? And what do you wish your professors knew about you? So I will be responsible for getting us through those and uh, we'll see where we end up. Um, so let's just start with what's most important to you.
1: So I was thinking before this, uh, thanks first off for doing this. This feels like a really great exit interview to kind of think <laughs> about um, the end of my four years yes. here as I graduate, which produces mixed feelings of excitement, awe, terror, hope, um, all in the same five minute span. Um, <laughs> So in terms of things that are most important for me, I think, number one, I would start with my Catholic faith, which I grew up with um, and which was brought to me both by my family and also my elementary and middle school. And I think the two main components that stand out to me that that faith has taught me are, one, um, just the brokenness that is inherent to myself and my capacity for um, selfishness and pride and sin. And not only for myself, but for the human condition as a whole, and just the limits, even while, and just the limits of our ability to fundamentally fix that, either as individuals or as a society. But also, more importantly, beyond that, the power of grace, both through God and through um, our churches, our communities, um, our spiritual practices, to be healed and to be redeemed and to become the people that we were created to be.
0: So what has that been like to be a practicing um, Catholic? And not just a practicing Catholic, but someone for whom this faith is the center of your making sense out of the world. Um, what What's that been like at a fairly secular campus like Bowdoin?
1: It's interesting. You know, I don't feel like I've been persecuted by any means. I don't think that I found a Bowdoin... Um, kind of the very aggressive, obnoxious, say, new atheists along the lines of, say, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. I think there's a lot of respect, a lot of curiosity. But at the same time, because your worldview is very different from other people on campus, um, it's oftentimes difficult to kind of find common intellectual ground. And just to see how you have basic assumptions about what society is, what the individual is, that really does dissent from a lot of the modern consensus, whether that's mm-hmm. on both liberal or conservative mm-hmm. ends. And I think the Catholic faith um, really should make any ideology that you hold uncomfortable. I've been very surprised over my four years to realize that there are actually many more students of faith on campus than one might realize if you look at, say, the size of religious groups on campus. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are very quietly practicing their faith by going to mass or church on Sundays, and often just through the things that they do in the community. I mean, I know a lot of Catholics and Christians on campus who really find their faith best manifested and best lived, not so much through the organizations, but through the work they're doing with service in the McKean Mm -hmm, Center. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I think one nice thing about the limits of faith-based organizations on campus is that it really encourages you to kind of get outside the and bubble and get involved in local parishes and churches. And that's just so great because personally I found that I socially thrive when I'm with people with a wide range of ages. And it does get exhausting at times to be with mm-hmm. the same cohort of people from the 18 and 22 mm-hmm. range. And when you can get involved in a nearby church that has Young families, young adults, elderly people, middle aged people, just that range of wisdom, life experiences, mm-hmm. opinions really allows you to kind of get outside of Bowdoin and be in a place that can remind you to a great extent of what your home is like back
0: Oh, yeah, that's nice. Back as well. I wonder um, do you have many friends at Bowdoin who would say that Catholicism? is the most important thing in their life?
1: I can think of a few. I think one challenge of being Catholic on campus is that, frankly, our high schools have not done a good job, really, or the churches we came from, really developing students intellectually in their Christian faith. And Mm -hmm. so when they come to a campus like this and they feel very challenged, not in a hostile way, but just by very provocative secular points of view in their classes. Um, More surprisingly enough, I think, in the humanities and social sciences as opposed to physical sciences. They really don't know how to respond, and they don't feel like they've been given the writers the resources from their faith to help them not so much defend their point of view, but really kind of be able to give a thoughtful Christian Mm. reply. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm And...
1: um, I think a lot of students have really wrestled with that, not feeling like they were given kind of the intellectual tools from their churches to um, really wrestle with, say, points of view that were at times radically opposed to um, or in tension with the Christian and Catholic view of of the human person, yeah. especially in regards to, I think, um, a lot of the bioethical, sexual, and moral mm-hmm. issues as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that a lot of students have... Um, complained about. It. And because we are a smaller campus, we don't necessarily have the scale of organizations that you might have at a Harvard or a Penn State mm-hmm. where they're able to bring in a lot of major Christian thinkers and organize a lot of events to help kids understand their own faith intellectual tradition and realize that faith and reason don't have to be in tension with one another, but are almost like two wings that mm-hmm. allow you to understand the truth about reality.
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back mm-hmm. to the faith and um, bringing together faith and reason in just a, a second, but I want to go back to one other piece. Mm-hmm. And so my question initially was, do you have friends who identify, you know, in, in important ways mm-hmm. as Catholics? So my next question is, do you did you find affinity with um, students from other faith groups mm-hmm. um, on campus who identify their faith? Uh, as a major way that they make sense out of the world mm. and themselves, um, even if it wasn't Catholic.
1: I I do regret that I haven't been able to build, um, really get connected to students who are very deeply practicing Jewish and Muslim on campus. I have been fairly involved off and on with the Bowdoin Christian Fellowship mm-hmm. and the more evangelical group if you will on campus and uh, they've been an enormous spiritual support for me but I think at the same time because the way that the Catholic Church and the way we celebrate um, the worldview it just it it is still different from evangelical so Mm -hmm. at times it's not so much that I feel uncomfortable in the spaces that they organize but I do feel that it's not it doesn't have the same homeliness that I could find Mm -hmm. in a specifically Catholic context.
0: Um, it's so interesting. I'm thinking I can actually name three other students I know for whom, uh, their Catholic faith is, faith is really important, where they tell me that that's where they met someone they fell in love with, mm-hmm. or that they find themselves in a church when they are stressed out yeah. and it's a calming space for them. And I, and I'll ask you later, maybe if you know them, um, because I just wonder, like, do you find each other? You know, mm-hmm. if they aren't attending, um... The, you know, if they aren't participating in the campus organizations but are participating in other ways, um, are there possibilities that you're not connecting? Hmm. Um, Okay, let's go back to the faith and reason piece. And I'm curious how um, professors have responded to ways Hmm. that you might use intellectual resources from. Catholicism, to make sense out of what you're learning in in your courses.
1: Where I think that's taking place.
0: Or even, you know, either specific examples or general sense... You know, general senses of... Did you do it, or did you choose not to do it because you thought it would be um, poorly received, or... Hmm.
1: I mean, I think in... In my history department I've been able to take a lot of courses that touch on religion and I've been really impressed by how the professors don't, the professors I've worked with have been able to see in what ways faith often plays a positive role to the development of social justice and progress and I've really benefited from, say working with Alan Wells who I hope to talk about later, who teaches Latin American history and just seeing the enormous respect he had for how Catholic social justice teaching, how liberation theology really helped Latin Americans um, advocate for themselves and uh, build themselves up as marginalized communities in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, Similarly, you know, I look at Paige Herlinger, who specializes in Russian history, and her big focus has really been trying to show that to really break this misconception that Russian Orthodoxy has always been kind of um, uh, subservient um, tool of state and Tsarist power, of kind of backward and the status quo in mm-hmm. Russia. And she's done a lot of fascinating research on how orthodoxy rituals and mysticism and practices were really appropriated, not so much by the priest and hierarchy, but by ordinary believers to really create alternative mm-hmm. forms of labor movements that were just as much on the table in the 1910s as um, kind of the aggressive secularism Mm -hmm. of Bolshevism. In terms of, outside of the history department, some of the main professors I've worked with have been in political theory, Mm -hmm. Uh, people Mm -hmm. like Paul Franco and Gene Yarbrough. And although they are not Catholic, I think both of them, um, who are coming from either a progressive and conservative political perspective, really try to remind students that perhaps um, you cannot build a society totally as say John Rawls or you know Richard Morty would want to believe simply on purely rationalistic grounds that at the end of the day, a liberal society cannot ignore these ultimate questions, these metaphysical questions, these transcendent questions about the ultimate ends of uh, human life, hmm. and that there is however, whether you fully believe in the theology. There's a lot in the Jewish Mm -hmm. and Christian traditions that can give you and give our society the resources to answer these questions. And I've been impressed how they have been not so much defenders of specific religious beliefs, but the importance of religion in public life Mm -hmm. and in discourse that I think um, students need to hear since um, they often associate religious engagement in politics purely in kind of a... Reactionary way, reminiscent of mm-hmm. say Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and people like yep. that. Hmm.
0: All right, that's it. Sounds like you haven't had, you know, we often hear about um, students who are conservative feeling mm-hmm. oppressed on campus, you know, feeling oppressed on the campus. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, um, and I feel like I've heard that maybe there have been some articles in the Orient about students who have conservative points of view feeling as though they are either silenced or shamed or um, disregarded. Do you feel like you've had that experience?
1: Hmm. I think sometimes those complaints are a bit ironic since conservatives often criticize other groups for playing the victim card but they often themselves seem to be replicating that kind of trying to gain status through victimhood and the feeling of being oppressed. Um, I think there's a difference between... You, you just have to learn to like kind of be a bit courageous and challenge the status quo and obviously that can be uncomfortable. That doesn't mean you're being oppressed. That just simply means you have to take ownership of points of view that are unpopular, unusual, and unique and I think a lot of very radical people on the other side of the campus feel that same feeling as Mm -hmm. well, that it's very hard to challenge the, shall we say, kind of limousine liberal, um, kind of John Stewart liberal, progressive, kind of bland consensus on campus, and whether you do that as a anarchist, as a radically pro-life person, as a person of faith, as a conservative or libertarian that's gonna make you uncomfortable. In terms of oppression or being marginalized, I do think sometimes there is a laziness among some progressive students to say that a conservative position is always informed by a certain ism. So being
0: Mm -hmm. concerned
1: about affirmative action has to be motivated by, you know, subliminal unconscious racism. Um, You know, I've had students in classes say that some of the writings of T.S. Eliot's uh, political works, you can just assume unconsciously that it was motivated by anti-semitism which ipso facto rules out his argument. Um, Similarly, being against abortion is motivated by a desire to recreate the 1950s and so on and so forth. So I think at times that projection of either malevolent conscious or subconscious biases as a way to kind of rule out Mm -hmm. points of view without actually engaging with them is a problem that I've seen more amongst students than professors. Um, But at the same time, I think there's so many... Those kind of more aggressive, closed-minded students are outweighed, as a rule, I would say, by the number of Bowdoin students that are hungry to hear a thoughtful, conservative point of view and who obviously realize that Fox News, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz are not fair representations of what center-right ideas can offer our society. So the support I've gotten from the administration to create this organization this year. The numbers that we've seen at the events that we've put on show that there's a hunger for more intellectual diversity. And I think probably the best way the school can advance that is by continuing to support our work and um, just trying to find a way to bring more conservative faculty on campus. And I don't think that requires say a quota but it can mean saying really reaching out to um, maybe southern schools like Baylor University of Virginia, some of the Catholic and Christian universities see, see the students coming out of their PhD programs, really looking for uh, faculty that are pursuing fields that are more likely to have conservative thinkers, like say military history or the American oh, founding. Right. Yeah. So I think these are kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: smart steps that we can take. Um, and it's not easy because there's simply not as many conservative faculty and libertarian faculty in general. Uh, in academia, but I think work can be done and if you look at the fact that many prestigious schools like harvard um, villanova emory Notre Dame have been able to create more balanced faculty, then there are steps we can take to move that forward.
0: Well, it seems like that just holds on to the or that that just advances the argument about the value of diversity mm-hmm. that the more diversity we have. Um, the greater number of ideas we're hearing Mm -hmm. and the better our conversations are going to be, um, the way we theorize is going to be improved, Um, the way we learn to make arguments is going to be better Mm -hmm. uh, when we have more of those perspectives. Um, I am going to ask you a totally selfish question right now. Uh, I'm curious if you felt silenced by me because I I feel like I'm an unabashedly...
1: Lefty. Interesting. Um, I don't think it was silenced, <laughs> but I do think in the education department, I'm not sure if I was able to hear a. F- I was not always able to hear a full articulation of. Conservative educational reform ideas like charter schools, mm. school, school choices, mm. so on and so forth. Mm. And you guys brought Frederick Hess, I think, a few years ago. Yeah. I was abroad, mm-hmm. so I was not able to hear that, but um,
0: full disclosure. Yeah. That came out of the government department. Oh okay. But we did co-sponsor. Yeah. Okay,
1: so you put <laughs> some money. <in>. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in that sense, but mm. that was obviously. Did out. you
0: take education in the human condition with me? Yeah. Did
1: we fight? No, not How really. I, it wasn't it? really controversial. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we read uh Roncier, who I thought yes. was a con artist, frankly. A lot of yep. those French
0: yes. postmodern
1: writers are not don't fit my bill, but um, No, I loved reading it. We read Souls of Black Folk. What else did we did read?
0: Did we read did we read Arendt? No. When didn't. you were no. only because I was just thinking about her human condition, mm. and, and just thinking about a Jewish thinker who has so much to say about brokenness mm-hmm. in the world. Um, I don't know, just thinking about that. It's
1: amazing. The thing I think about is um, how we're all kind of, at Bowdoin, we often are intellectual, close intellectual descendants of many other famous thinkers. So, you know, for example, Jean Yarbrough, who's been one of my favorite professors here, she was a student of Hannah Arendt, mm-hmm. and Hannah Arendt was a student of Heidegger, and Heidegger mm-hmm. was a student of Nietzsche, so
0: mm-hmm.
1: when I think of the course I've taken with Yarbrough, I imagine, wow, I am Heidegger's intellectual
0: Heir. great-grandchild, mm-hmm. um,
1: so that smacks of hubris, but it is <laughs> cool to think of just this, this kind of chain of being and mm-hmm. ideas that we are connected to, not only because of the books we're reading, but also because of mm-hmm. where our professors are coming from, too. Absolutely.
0: Let's talk about, you had brought up um, the organization you started mm-hmm. this year and saying that there, there was this clear interest from students and um, I guess students in particular to hear about um, conservative points of view and hear reasoned conservative arguments. Mm-hmm. So will you talk a little bit about yeah, so I started, the Eisenhower Forum?
1: So I started a group with Matt Trot who's graduating this year called the Eisenhower Forum. And our goal was really to uh, create a space where conservative students and curious students could really wrestle with the best of center-right thought. And so we meet, we've met every Friday um, from 6.30 to 7.30. And I basically try to send out um, anywhere between a three to 10 page article uh, a few days before from magazines like National Review, uh, The Atlantic, First Things, Commentary, Uh, the economists and use that as a base of discussion and beginning of the year we had maybe three or four coming to every meeting and now the average is about eight or nine Um, and we've had great discussions and i think what you see coming out of that is that even when you're with people on the right um, it's not as if we're all just preaching to the choir there Mm -hmm. we had people coming up from it from so many perspectives so we have people who are more Um, like myself, who are a bit more socially conservative and coming at it from a religious perspective versus more full-blown libertarians. Um, People who are very populist and very opposed to um, just our economy's reliance on illegal immigration and free trade, and those who are a bit more kind of uh, neoliberal in their economic point of view. So even when we have all conservatives there, there's very rich, exciting discussion. And then in terms of events we've done outside of that, we organized, uh, we brought in a political philosopher from Assumption College, who is an expert on Solzhenitsyn and French thought. And he gave a lecture on the conservative foundations of the liberal society. And then we also brought a thinker um, who's editor of the American Interest, who was a speechwriter for Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, Adam Garfinkel, who talked about Obama, foreign policy in the Middle East. So at both of those events, we probably had 60 to 70 students, wow. which is, I think, very, very impressive just because, as you know, it's, it's often very hard just because of the hyper-scheduling at Bowdoin, which I do think is problematic. Um, it's just very hard for people to find time to go to lectures, panels, and yeah. so on and so forth. And the fact that we were able to do that during very busy times of year academically was, I think, a really good sign. Um, but there's work to be done. I'd like to get the, big, uh, get the, br- get the group to be larger and, frankly, more diverse. Um, mm-hmm. We did have two Hispanic students, myself included. Um, but overall, it was a very white cohort. Um, we have not had yet uh, too many active female members. And I think that just speaks to just the larger problem of conservatives, um, certainly at the national level not showing why their ideas really can improve the quality of life for women and for communities of color. Um, So I'd like to see us really become more representative of the campus and really just assure students that even if you don't really agree with our points of view, you're welcome to come to our meetings and read these ideas and wrestle with them and see what you can get out of them, good or bad.
0: That sounds great. Do you have someone who's going to follow up? Yeah, so we have three training? students
1: leading in next year. What I'm really excited about is they. It was almost all freshmen, um, mm-hmm. first years. Uh, so there's going to be two first year leaders now, sophomores, and then one senior. So that combination between and also with the advising of Yarbro, I think we'll be in really good shape. Oh, good.
0: And Excellent.
1: we have a very. That's exciting. I'm very excited. We have a very prestigious thinker coming next spring, who is basically considered top five best conservative intellectuals in the country right now.
0: Will you reveal? Um,
1: Yeah, Yuval Levin. Um, Paul Ryan has said that he's basically his favorite intellectual. I mean, he really is shaping the movement right now. And um, we were able to get him, so we're really excited for that.
0: That's great. Yeah. Um, Have you had, as someone who identifies as Hispanic Mm -hmm. um, and as conservative, um, have you had... Any challenges with the um, Hispanic or Latino community at Bowdoin saying, hmm, how can you embody both mm. of those things?
1: Not really. And I've, I've often wrestled with my own identity as Hispanic in the sense of I felt very comfortable identifying as Hispanic at my high school, which was all white and Caucasian. Um, but as I interacted with more Latinos on campus and just given the, um, the struggles that they've had in terms of opportunities, in terms of discrimination, um, in terms of their families really being recognized as part of our country, um, it just kind of made me feel uncomfortable identifying as Latino, um. Which I guess is, I I could see how that's problematic because I'm saying in order to be a minority you have to feel a sense of oppression. Mm -hmm. But just by interacting with them and also the fact that I don't speak Spanish and my family is just so ethnically mixed, um, I've kind of wrestled with how much, how right is it for me to identify with that if for most of my life um, in, I can't really think of, the number of times on my hand that I really faced any discrimination if for almost my entire life I've been able to identify as white and receive all those privileges. Um, I think one great thing and this ties into your second question about you know what liberal arts means to you is that you really have to recognize when you're at a liberal arts college you really have to have your basic assumptions questioned and I think the two, the issue of Latino identity and conservative identity connect because I was in a course with Alan Wells on Latin American history, and a fabulous professor, one of the ones I will most remember at this college, and um, he really did make me have to ask very uncomfortable questions about how the foreign policy of presidents like Reagan and Nixon mm-hmm. really affected a lot of Latin American countries, and um, and I don't think he did that in a self righteous way. I mean, obviously. You're never going to have a foreign policy that um, is mor- morally pure. and There's always going to be ambiguities when you exercise power on a global scale. But I don't think that took away from the fact that a lot of the American choices there um, really cannot be fully justified on strategic grounds. And we have to learn to see those costs, and I think we see that you know, in the explosion of immigration from Guatemala over the past mm-hmm. couple of years, you know, we have to recognize that our choices, um, which might not have been motivated by pure evil, um, by any means, still had an impact that resonates today. Right. And we have to take ownership of that as a nation and as, um, especially as one that I think rightly claims the mantle of global leadership. And there he is. <laughs> yeah. There Alan he is, yeah. Wells is. Walking past the
0: window. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering if you can answer a question for me, um, and this is partly another selfish question because I may um, go work in Colombia um, at a libera- with a liberation mm. theology based organiza- faith based organization, um, and I am curious if there is any contradiction and I'm asking this question not to catch you no, no. but to learn I think asking it will help me mm-hmm. l- understand some of the distinctions mm-hmm. um, or just gain more background knowledge about is there a contradiction between conservatism and liberation theology or are they or or is it just like we all live in some contradictions and I can hold these kinds of commitments about You know, and uh, about liberation theology, but then I'm also going to hold these kinds of commitments about conservatism. Right? We don't need to be fully coherent. Yeah, I mean, I
1: do think there are inevitable tensions in the sense of liberation theology is heavily drawn from Marxist economics, and is very skeptical about the ability of economic liberalism and capitalism to create a just, prosperous, and developing society. Um, So in that sense, I don't think I would identify as a follower of liberation theology. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, What I would say, though, is that liberation theology is informed by this general body of Catholic social teaching, which has developed over the past 200 years, especially as popes really had to help uh, the church wrestle with industrialization and economic development. And that social teaching um, has two components that I think can appeal to both liberals and conservatives, and that one side of it is what we would call solidarity, which is the Mm -hmm. sense of society has to, um, at either a global level or at a national state level, really make sure that the common good is served and that the most vulnerable people in the society are taken care of. And I think I would subscribe to that as a conservative, that any... Healthy liberal democracy has to have some kind of safety net and welfare state. Um, doesn't mean it has to look like Scandinavia or Sweden, but it is something that we need to um, develop, especially as our economy goes through a very painful, difficult transition in terms of the rise of automation, um, the decline of jobs that don't require too much education, deindustrialization, globalization. Um, there have been winners and losers. In terms of that change, and I think that change has on net been good for this country, but we also have to remember that not everyone has benefited in the same way. So one component is solidarity, and obviously that can appeal to progressives more. But there's also this principle of subsidiarity, which is the idea that you try to rely on as many um, non-state actors to solve social problems and really rely on the creativity of civil society and local solutions, whether that's local governments, churches, charities, nonprofits, the family, and try to use those intermediate bodies to solve mm-hmm. challenges, as opposed to only relying on the administrative state. And obviously, that appeals to more conservative and libertarian set- mm-hmm. tendencies. So solidarity. But also, solidarity. I mean,
0: for me, yeah. I'm just thinking that that appeals to me as some on, mm-hmm. on the left mm-hmm. as um, thinking about using knowledge of the people, growing local yeah. solutions, um, having you know mm-hmm. supporting grassroots movements. Yeah. Um, so it seems like that could be a great mm. place for, um, for people who are more uh, liberal or progressive or radical on the left and uh, conservatives, you know, to find a place to meet. Yeah. Huh. Thanks. That's mm-hmm. really helpful. Was there anything else about what's oh. most important to you that we haven't I talked think... about?
1: The two other things that stand out to me are um, I spent a gap a year before I came to Bowdoin, I spent a year working with a Christian organization in Camden, New Jersey, which is one of the toughest cities uh, in our country. And I lived in the community. I helped run a middle school and after school program there. Um, I worked along with high schoolers who worked alongside us to help them get into college, work on their resumes. Um, you know, someone who was very young at that point, 18, I received incredible mentoring and just spiritual direction from mm. um, many of the kids I worked with, frankly, mm-hmm. um, the older interns, the staff. I mean, I was just in this place of incredible um, Christian love and service and passion about serving. Um, a very broken but beautiful community. And I think I still see the legacy of that, um, of what I've learned in Camden today. Um, In the sense of when I go on Facebook, and I'm still Facebook friends with most of the kids i worked with Mm -hmm. there, um, pretty much at least every two weeks, at least one is posting about a family member, a friend who's been killed. And that just still hits me from someone who came from such a comfortable background that how many children are interacting with death at a young age. And I myself did as well. You know, my father died of cancer when I was in third grade. But... I think confronting death in the terms of murder and violence is something Mm -hmm. even more terrifying and traumatic. Um, And seeing so many kids I knew there who had a lot of potential but are now getting involved in drug dealing, um, going to college but not completing it, um, some of them really on the edge of even finishing high school, um, those stories and memories have still stuck with me. And I think it really makes me think about, um, as a conservative, are we thinking about those people? Mm-hmm. Are we going to reach out to those who are in the shadows of our society? And not so much to guarantee equal results or outcomes, but really to give everyone a fair chance in the mm-hmm. race of life, as Abraham Lincoln would say. Yeah. And, um, and in addition to that, really giving people the promise of genuine equal opportunity. Also making sure that material poverty does not have to be... Um, alienation, in the sense of I think all mm-hmm. societies are going to have, to some extent, poor or less well-off people. The question is, can we make sure that those people still feel like they are part of this country,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that they are valued by the rest of the community, um, that they have a place in the social order? And I think what I saw in Canada was not simply material poverty, but I think even more importantly, the sense of alienation that those people felt from the rest of the country and the rest of our country's destiny. So I still am wrestling with how can I reconcile the ideas that I believe in with those personal experiences I've had and really to make sure that those experiences are informing my ideas so that my ideas don't simply become an ideology right. that is no grounding in reality. Um, and then I think the final thing that is most important to me because I'm thinking about a career in the foreign service and diplomacy um, is really making sure that we can have responsible American leadership of the world. I really do believe that we are the last best hope of the world. We have made deep and grievous mistakes in our exercise of global leadership, Iraq, most recent one being, but I don't see how we can have a world of continued Um, economic growth and democratization and growing um, prosperity and opportunity for billions of people without some underwriting of that order by American power and responsibility. Um, And I think I hope that that is something I can contribute to in whatever I do after I graduate.
0: That's great. That's exciting. (laughs) I'd be happy for you to represent us. What do you wish your professors knew
1: about you? I think, well, I wish professors and I wish staff maybe realized that Bowdoin students know how to put up a good face. um, And we need to do that. I mean, you don't want people just crying hysterically on the quad. Mm -hmm. or I mean, you have to put on a mask to some extent to function in society. But I do wish professors um, just kind of were aware of the burdens that we all carry going to a school like this. Um, And that sometimes, even though you're able to put on a good face, there's a lot going on beneath the surface. Um, Which they might not see if they look at the face, they look Uh, at the grades you're getting, that there's other things going on. uh You know, I really struggled, wasn't diagnosed, but I did go through kind of a bout of depression um, last fall which was, I was able to work through both through my faith and the amazing counselors that we have here, um, but what I was struck by going through those meetings was just realizing that all the things I was wrestling with, so many other Bowdoin students are, Mm -hmm. um, things in terms of, and I really didn't have, like, fear of the future or worries about, you know, my career, it was more actually looking back at my Bowdoin experience, um, Feelings that I had not done everything I could have done. Mm. Senses of friendships that I had either not pursued, lost track of, uh, not fully developed. Courses or majors I could have done instead. Um, always comparing yourself to students that look more successful and happy than mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of, I think, the tyranny of comparison that really mm-hmm. is.
0: Um, a more prope versus a de soi. Yeah.
1: Which I think is yeah. probably worse at the Ivy League schools in Mowden, but is more here, is here as well. Um, and I think that was just a healing experience, too, just realizing that this is a burden a lot of millennials are carrying, um, so don't feel like you're by. You're doing this on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that whole experience made me realize for the first time that mental health is really an undiscussed issue, both at this campus and in our generation, um, and it's something we need to work on.
0: Thank you. Yeah. It's been lovely talking it's so lovely. to you. All right, let me turn it off. I don't know. Oh, forty minutes.